Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatsack, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. Long before the church had pulpits and baptistries, she had kitchens and dinner tables. The believers met together in the temple every day. They ate together in their homes, happy to share their food with joyful hearts. Every day in the temple and in people's homes, they continued teaching the people and telling the good news that Jesus is the Christ. The primary gathering place of the church was in the home. Now today we meet in the Archbishop's Corner, and we recall the words of Jesus that where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. For the early Christian community, the house was the primary gathering place, the Eucharist was celebrated, and where the gospel was shared. Today we meet in the Archbishop's Corner to celebrate God's Word and break open a new understanding of the gospel as we look to Archbishop Leonard Blair to open our hearts and minds to God's Word. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. Happy Easter on this second Sunday of Easter, Divine Mercy Sunday. It certainly was a busy but a blessed Holy Week and Easter. How would you describe this time of grace and faith? Well, one thing I would say is, uh, and we've talked about this before, that in our culture in the United States today, we celebrate something before it happens, and the, the, as soon as it happens, we're done, and we move on to what's next. The church's uh, celebrations are the opposite. So we have Lent before Easter and Advent before Christmas, and then Easter begins on Easter Sunday. It doesn't end on Easter Sunday. Mm. And so we are in the season of Easter for the church where we keep uh, before us this great celebration of the Lord's resurrection from the dead. And I've been wishing people, I continue to wish people a happy Easter, and sometimes I get some strange-looking faces in return, like, don't you know that Easter was last Sunday? It's done, it's over with, that's it, and now we go on to Memorial Day or something like that? Well, you know, Pope uh, St. John Paul always talked about the supreme importance of culture, human culture, and that's what we're talking about here, because, for example, in those places or countries or regions where there's a Catholic culture, uh, then Easter and Christmas or whatever, the liturgical holidays, set the tone for the civic uh, life. So you may remember even, even though they're not as Christian or Catholic as they once were, but in much of Europe, Easter Monday is a big holiday mm. still because it's a prolongation. But in, a, in the United States, except for ethnic communities that may preserve some of that tradition, uh, the country as a whole, we don't have that Catholic uh, uh, background. And so we have to uh, try to create within our own church community some sense of that celebration being prolonged. And, of course, when you go to Mass on Sunday, or in, hopefully even during the week for some people, uh, you'll see that, uh, how Easter unfolds over the next couple weeks. Easter will last until Pentecost Sunday. Yes. It is Divine Mercy Sunday, which is a celebration, an opportunity to reflect on how God's mercy can overcome sin. Do you want to comment on this feast and where our thoughts should be on this day? Certainly, as Pope Francis uh, emphasizes, uh, but of course, every pope does in, in a different way, and every teacher of the faith does, every pastor, that <clears throat> mercy uh, is at the heart of uh, the Incarnation and what Christ did for us on the cross. 
you know, so many things that Christ said. He did not come to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him, through faith in him. That's why he came. So it's no surprise that divine mercy is a, a central theme, really, of the gospel of Christianity, and and uh, it's very appropriate even during this Easter season to talk about it. Tomorrow is the feast day of St. Catherine of Siena, the patron saint of Italy. What should we know about St. Catherine of Siena? Well, St. Catherine of Siena was a remarkable figure at a very difficult time in the life of the Church. You know, we think we have our troubles today, and God knows we do. Mm. Uh, but when you look at the history of the Church, you know, the as Jesus said in the parable, the wheat and the weeds grow together, and they're not separated until the final judgment. And so... In her time, um, the papacy was in very rough shape. It, it wasn't even, Pope wasn't even living in Rome, and uh, he was in France. And uh, she was very outspoken um, and had the uh, moral authority of her way of life and her piety uh, to effect a lot of conversions and bring about a lot of change. And that's another great lesson, too, you know, that the faith is not vindicated and purified by committees or commissions or documents but really by the saints. They're the ones who, I think of St. Francis of Assisi, he lived in a time when the church was in a bad way too, and he effected a remarkable transformation. And so similarly, St. Catherine of Siena, and we always have to pray that God will raise up great saints to help us that, that way. And she was responsible for bringing the papacy back from Avignon to Rome, correct? Well, she was, yes, she was very vocal. She was very instrumental. I, I wouldn't say she was the only factor, but she was a very significant factor, and and she certainly uh, challenged the Pope that this was not right and it had to end. And, uh, you know, again, the Church uh, through the centuries, you know, the Church is the guardian of faith and the instrument of, of faith, uh, a sign, but also it's made up of saints and sinners, both. This Tuesday is National Honesty Day where we celebrate honesty and those who are honest and honorable in their dealings with others. So schools and religious organizations and the media are all encouraged to make honesty a subject of discussion. So why don't we discuss honesty from the Archbishop's point of view? Do you think Archbishop society is losing its truthful integrity today? Well, that's hard to say. I mean, since uh, the beginning, since the fall, uh, the temptations are the same. And there have been, uh, there's always... Uh, Let's put it this way. There are always temptations and that falsehood is always uh, there because the evil one is there. But, uh, you know, one thinks of Christ's own passion. One of the great sufferings of Jesus was to be, uh, to sit silently and have all kinds of lies told about him and false witnesses. And there's nothing greater to bring up one's blood pressure than false falsehood, mm -hmm. you know, especially mm -hmm. if you're the object of false accusation or falsehoods. So, you know, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And what did he tell Pilate? He came into this world. I am a king. My kingdom is not of this world, but I came to bear witness to the truth. And truth is brutalized in the world, always has been. And in the United States today, with the great proliferation of communication uh, things, uh, instruments, they can be great uh, instruments of truth but they can also be instruments of falsehood and lies. And so we always have to be, I think we have a duty to seek the truth, to, to uh, uh, strive to find out the real truth about things, and we shouldn't allow ourselves to be pulled this way and that 
by everything and anything that's said. Um, so yes, truth is always, uh, you know, sometimes it seems that the, uh, a society or the world can be overcome by lies and falsehood. Look at what happened with the, you know, uh, Marxism and Nazism, just mm -hmm. to give examples. So we, we, we have to be very careful, but we can always, we always know this, we can rest secure in the knowledge that in the resurrection of Christ from the dead and his lordship over the world and the judgment of God to come, that absolute truth will be vindicated and falsehood will be put, will be put to flight. Wednesday is the first day of May, and as a result, Wednesday is the feast of St. Joseph the Worker. What's the significance of this day honoring St. Joseph as the Worker, Archbishop? Well, as you know, the great feast of St. Joseph is March 19th. May 1st was added in more recent times uh, as a way to bring workers together uh, around uh, a Christian theme, around the Christian gospel. And the idea was that St. Joseph the carpenter is an ideal model of a working person for the church to honor on that day. Since the 19th century, there are the various workers' movements in Europe and the United States and elsewhere to create unions, to create uh, parties, uh, political parties and such. And so the church wanted to, and by the way, the church, since the modernization of the economy and industry and such at the end of the 19th century, the church, the popes particularly, issued some very strong teaching, social teachings of the church about justice and a fair wage and workers' rights. Mm -hmm. And eventually in that, the, the uh, it's this, this memorial of St. Joseph the Worker was added. And of course, it's on May 1st, which in Europe, Europe uh, commemorates May 1st as we commemorate Labor Day in September. So that was the principal reason why it was put on May 1st. Well, this Wednesday is also the start of the month of May in which we have National Preservation Month, it's called. During this month, historic places are promoted to instill pride and show the benefits of historic preservation. Historical buildings have needs, must be continually repaired. However, oftentimes they're not maintained because of the fear that they will be changed too much from their original state. And speaking of historic places, I think I would be remiss if I didn't ask your thoughts at this time regarding the fire that almost totally destroyed Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris and how you would perhaps like to see it restored. Well, I would, I would maybe uh, take a little exception to your saying it almost totally destroyed. Actually, I was quite relieved to see that uh, a good part of it has been preserved. Uh, although it will be a massive undertaking to rebuild it properly because of the kind of building it is. but uh, And I, I haven't got the latest uh, news on that, but it would seem that a great deal was saved, like uh, much of the stained glass, the great organ, um, some of the statuary, etc. So let's hope for the best in that regard. But as far as, uh, well, the, the Gothic Cathedral is a great um, witness, a great testimony uh, to Western civilization, to Christianity, uh, to the history, in this case, of Paris and of France, uh, a great labor of faith and, and love so many centuries ago. So we may build churches in a modern style today, like our own Cathedral of St. Joseph here in Hartford. But I would hope that uh, uh, Notre Dame would be restored uh, in accordance with its original uh, plan. And um, I think, you know, e although there we have to be careful, because you can imagine, since the 1100s, Notre Dame has been through many things, including the French Revolution, which did terrible damage to it. Uh, but uh, the spire that collapsed was um, a product of the 19th century architect Viollet-le-Duc, 
but he he designed it to be in keeping with the style that was originally intended. So it was a later edition, but it was not done in 19th century style so much, although there are elements of that to it. But it was done to try to preserve the Gothic. So I would hate to see some space needle kind of spire on a rebuilt Notre Dame. I hope that it will be in keeping with the architecture of the church. I, I if you're going to build a modern church, by all means, build a modern church. But if you're going to preserve, you know, there's a beauty and a history there that I hope will be respected. I think I read somewhere that somebody, some uh, avant-garde architect, uh, suggested that that collapsed spire be replaced by a mosque-like minaret. Well, you're going to get all kinds of eccentric comments made today, you know, but I I can't imagine that the French people would take to that very well. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, it it has to... Well, we'll see. That's It's not for us to decide. It's France's business, although I think uh, the church, uh, uh, certainly, and people who love these buildings and their heritage certainly have something to say about it. There's roughly a 700-year difference between Notre Dame and our own St. Anne's Shrine in Waterbury, but there are similarities. Both are Gothic-styled structures on a grand scale, iconic to their cities, valued by many beyond the Catholic community even, and the iconic towers of St. Anne will be coming down soon. The church has been closed because heavy pieces of stone are peeling off the exterior, and it's dangerous. Archbishop, what do you say to the parishioners of All Saints Parish about the future of their beloved church? Well, I certainly hope that St. Anne's can be uh, restored properly to its former glory, because certainly, not just for Catholics, but for the people of Waterbury, it's almost a symbol or emblematic of the city. You know, I remember when I first came to Hartford permanently, not just to, for press conference, but to, to live here, I decided to drive from Ohio here uh, rather than take an airplane, mm -hmm. just to get a sense of place and coming, you know, making mm -hmm. this trip. And I can remember driving through 84 as I'm getting closer to Hartford to be the new archbishop and uh, looking around on both sides and seeing that kind of Sienese uh, tower where the train station is mm -hmm. and seeing the cross on the on the hill there on the uh, you know the holy mountain holy and seeing the, the magnificent spires of St. Anne's I remember thinking how much that reminded me of uh, St. Anne de Beaupre in Quebec the great uh, basilica there so it would be a terrible uh, loss to Waterbury uh, civically and also to the Catholic people but we have to understand that it's it's nice to say that but you 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 see that how much tremendous amount of money it costs to restore and to maintain those kinds of buildings. And the original uh, communities that were there in such great numbers to do that at the, at the prices of those times, are no, that's no longer there. So we're working very hard, and well, we, the, the people uh, in Waterbury, uh, I know even the civic, civil authorities have spoken up that they want to, to, to be able to have, and, and they certainly have my blessing to do that. But we also have to be responsible at the same time about is, you know, is this going to be possible to do? And I certainly hope and pray that it will. And it's going to take a, a united effort between the church community and civil society in order to uh, achieve that. Huh? I suspect so, because I don't know. They, the cost of that kind of thing today is really exorbitant compared to, uh, you know, what the resources that are uh, available just on a regular basis Thursday is National Day of Prayer. It's a day inviting people of all faiths to pray for the nation. The National Day of Prayer has great significance for us as a nation as it enables us to recall and to teach the way in which our founding fathers sought wisdom from God 
when faced with critical decisions to be made. What will it take, Archbishop, for our country to return to its knees in prayer to God? Oh, that's a good question. I think only God knows the answer to that. But, uh, you know, recently I saw a survey that says that there's many people in the United States now who say they have no religion, as there are people who identify themselves as Roman Catholic. And uh, this is not just, uh, I mean, it, it's across the board, not just a, a comparison with Catholics, but other faiths as well. I think today we are plunging into a very secular world, and it remains to be seen how strong religion will remain in the public square. We have a duty to make it so, and when I say we, I don't mean just you and me as priests, but our Catholic people. Mm -hmm. If they will not uh, respectfully but openly uh, give testimony to their faith in the world and stand up for uh, religious and moral truths, then, you know, it doesn't bode well for, uh, for where we're going to be headed. Archbishop, let's take a look now at the road to happiness in life, and this is where we examine some of the wisdom of Pope Francis that is drawn from his writings. I'll read a short portion of the Holy Father's address, and we'll ask you to comment with your own thoughts on what Pope Francis has said. This is taken from Pope Francis's general audience, delivered on April 3rd of 2013, and is called, Who Doesn't Believe in Resurrection? Pope Francis says, Unfortunately, many have often tried to cloud our faith in the resurrection of Jesus. Doubts creep in, even among believers. We call this a rosewater faith. It is watered down. It's not a strong faith. This rosewater faith is a result of superficiality and indifference. Either we are busy with a thousand things that we think more important than faith, or we are wearing blinders. But it is the resurrection itself that brings hope, for it opens our life and the entire world to the eternal future of God, to full happiness, to the certainty that evil, sin, and death can be overcome. And this helps us trust, which helps us face our everyday lives with courage and determination. Christ's resurrection illuminates everyday life with a new light. The resurrection of Christ is our strength. Your thoughts, Archbishop. Well, Jesus Christ is decisive for the fate of the world, uh, the future of the world, and also the future and fate of every single human being, really of all creation. He's uh, the center of it all. And uh, his resurrection from the dead uh, is, uh, to speak colloquially, uh, a game changer, you know. With Christ, uh, there is a new creation of uh, the human person, and really it uh, is a new creation that embraces all of created reality. But like everything, uh, people can be indifferent or blinded or even corrupted away from the light and this truth. And, uh, of course, some people have not really been confronted with a choice to make in this regard. But certainly for those of us who have, it makes all the difference in the world. You know, the central question uh, that Christ asked is, who do you say that I am? And uh, that who uh, involves the fact that he is the conqueror of sin and death, that he's alive and risen from the dead. It's interesting that the Pope uh, calls a superficial faith, or one of indifference, he calls it a rosewater faith. Have you ever heard that addressed? Well, that I was just trying to think. Rosewater is like a scented. It's not the pure essence of rose perfume. Rosewater is just a. It's just water that kind of watered some, down. Huh? Well, yeah, it it's just kind of a scented water is what it is, and so it's it's uh, you know it's not too much, pleasant enough, but uh, not really uh, of the essence. Let's look at our Gospel reading for today, this second Sunday of Easter, the 20th day of April. Today's reading is from John's Gospel, the 20th chapter. 
And after this dramatic presentation, we'll talk with you, Archbishop, ask for your thoughts and its impact on our lives. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand in his side, I will not believe. Eight days later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. The doors were shut, but Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not be faithless, but believing. My Lord and my God, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Archbishop, what stands out for you in this post-resurrection story in John's Gospel? Well, it's the greeting of Christ to his apostles when he appears to them, Peace be with you, and as the Father sent me, I send you. So there you have it. Those mm -hmm. words are being addressed not just to the twelve, but to you and me, and to everybody who's baptized who hears them. Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And then, you know, receive the Holy Spirit who sends you forgive, they're forgiven them, who sends you retain, they're retained. That Christ came to take away sin, to... Well, as we say, take away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. And that includes our sins. It's forgiveness, mercy. But we have to be willing to accept uh, the, our need for forgiveness and be willing to accept the mercy of God. Thus, and, this gospel and, and the fact that this gospel is read on the second Sunday of Easter ties in so well with Divine Mercy Sunday. Absolutely. And, of course, then you have, the, you have Downing Thomas there beside and our Lord's words, blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. And that's us. Let's take a look at some of the questions that have been submitted by our listeners since time is running short on us. For instance, Gladys from Hartford says, I'm worried, Archbishop, about the state of things in our world. Two years ago on Palm Sunday, it was bombs at a church in Egypt. This Easter, terrorists killed hundreds of worshipers in church on the most holy day in Christianity. They had to stop all public worship in Sri Lanka out of concern for safety. What should we do, and is it wrong to be concerned about the same sort of thing happening in our own country? Well, no, we would be foolish not to be vigilant about it and prayerful about it. And uh, I would, I'll say two things uh, with regard to both. Uh, first of all, the vigilance. I have advised our pastors about the importance of uh, 
of being vigilant and taking what precautions we can, particularly with our schools, of course, uh, but with church as well. And uh, our insurance company has that we use for, for our properties and such has advice to give on that, which has been shared with the pastors. But the best advice you can give to your to the pastor is th- that, and your parish council, is that the uh, local police be invited in to come in and uh, survey your property and to give you some tips and, and advice about security in your in your buildings and in church. So that's the vigilance part. And the prayerful part is that I also encourage the parishes that might not be a bad idea to uh, put up an image of St. Michael the Archangel in the vestibule of church and invoke uh, his prayerful protection of the church and our people, uh, you know, when they gather. But there are other things, too. I mean, we. my point is, uh, St. Michael is, is a thought, but uh, they're also to offer prayers in general to, to you know, ask the protection of our Lord and Our Lady, the saints and angels, uh, to, to guard us and keep us safe. Even here, we can look at persecution of those who are religious. Well, yes, and, you know, one thinks here in our own country, too, of those uh, black churches down in Louisiana, I believe it, it was, that were historic black communities that were torched. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is a very uh, serious matter and, and one that we all need to be concerned about. And right next door to us in the Archdiocese of New York, an individual gets caught walking into St. Patrick's Cathedral with two gas cans and lighters in lighter fluid. Absolutely. Archbishop, moving on, we have a question from Martha from Oxford. Martha says, After I was baptized, my family stopped going to church, and I never received my confirmation. Now that I am older, I have decided I would like to be confirmed. I am choosing to believe. However, I still have doubts. My whole life, I have always believed something created the universe, but my brain is hardwired to examine everything and need concrete evidence. My question is, if I choose to believe it and live my life as best as I can according to the Church, can I be confirmed even with these doubting thoughts? Well, that's a very interesting situation uh, you're describing and a a difficult question to answer. I would say this. I think it's Cardinal Newman who says, a thousand difficulties does not make a doubt. The letter James talks about doubt as being something that destroys faith. But difficulties in the sense that there are hard questions about faith and about particulars of the faith that may trouble a person, that's one thing, but it doesn't necessarily constitute a doubt. Um, I think that, uh, you know, our Lord's appearance uh, to St. Thomas uh, and the apostles where he said, uh, do not be unbelieving but believing, uh, you know, and, and through history, Thomas has been called Doubting Thomas. Uh, so in answer to the question, though, uh, you have to be able to make an act of faith. I mean, along the lines of, Lord, I may have trouble understanding a lot about uh, the articles of faith. I may have difficult questions about them. But like the man in the gospel, I say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Then, yes, you should be confirmed. And uh, to do that, speak to your parish priest, and maybe you can participate in the adult confirmation here at the cathedral that we have twice a year. Let's see if we can get in one quick last question. Archbishop Ritchie from New Haven says, I came across an article stating that some Christian groups, such as Jehovah's Witnesses, believe that Jesus did not rise bodily, but spiritually. Isn't the physical resurrection of Christ the cornerstone of the Christian faith? Yes, it is. And of course, today over the centuries, There are many variations of people who call themselves Christian, and we have respect for them, 
But uh, yes, it is an absolute article of Christian faith that Christ rose bodily from the dead. Archbishop, can you close our program with a prayer and a blessing, please? Lord Jesus Christ, we praise and bless you because by your cross and resurrection, you have redeemed the world. And we pray that we may respond to that gift of redemption, that gift of peace and forgiveness by an ever deeper faith, which is also a gift of your grace, but which we ask be strengthened and multiplied in us and in so many of our brothers and sisters in our country and the world who find it hard to believe or no longer believe or reject the faith. May there be a great renewal of faith in you, Lord, in our country and in the world. You who live and reign forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And may Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. We look forward to another invitation for next Sunday at 7 o'clock in the morning with a repeat at 1130. And until then, we wish you a very pleasant week. Thank you.